All right, hello and welcome to Between the Liars with Ryan, Josh. Hello, hello, hello. Austin. Hey, everybody. And Marcelo. Hey, everyone. Today we're going to cover the Right to Repair Act as well as Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. Before that, though, I think we have a few announcements that we'd like to cover. All right, I'll kick us off with announcements today. So it looks like you guys need to follow us on social media. You can find us on Instagram, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and of course YouTube. So just come and like our pages, come and subscribe so you can keep up with everything that we're doing here between the wires. And the reason you're going to do that is because so you won't miss out on live streams and videos just like this one. We're going to try to have the as often as we can join so we can respond to your comments and interact with you all and then possibly that might you know bring on more interesting conversations and view that you all have the next announcement that we have is we're going to continue to plug our merch designed by monica zadra and the humble bee studio it's fantastic stuff it's all of our logos all of the logo you see behind us right now and the images on the podcast and spotify all of that stuff we're so appreciative to have it and it's great work and if you all want some of it you can come and get of it and austin's going to tell you how you can go about doing that in a giveaway. Surprise, free stuff. So we're going to be having some giveaways through our social media. So please go and like our Facebook. Again, follow us on Instagram, follow us on Twitter, sub to our YouTube channel, DM us that you've done those things. And the first five will receive a free sticker. And I think you saw Ryan hold them up. They are there. They exist physically. They are beautiful having our logo on them and they will look great on your laptop, on your Yeti, anywhere you want to put them, put them on your car, put them on your arm. I don't care. They're going to look great anywhere. Before we jump into today's topics, if you've kept up with the news, you should know that Congress is set to vote on the bipartisan infrastructure bill as well as the Build Back Better package, kind of that human infrastructure, which we covered on a previous episode. And in that previous episode, we wound up making a prediction on how we thought that would be going. So far, my prediction is holding true. Uh, Mansion and Cinema, one of the two, if not both, in my opinion, will be the ones that are holding up this package since they're trying to push them through at the same time instead of taking individual votes. I don't see this actually happening. I think the more uh, progressive wing is going to have to cave or else they're going to bear the brunt of the the government shutdown. That is that is my projection. We'll touch more on that next week. What do you think? Uh, I think Christian cinema is in real danger of getting primaried. Um, there's already been significant funds being raised. There are political action committees that uh, spent money on her campaign and ads for her that have um, now sw- kind of switched their opinion saying, you know, if you're going to not, uh, un- you know, not back the effort to, buy- to undo the filibuster to get these deals done, we're not going to be supporting you and we will support your primary opponent. So I think Joe Manchin's is in a is in a significantly safer bet. And I think the context of West Virginia means he plays that a bit more conservative because he's in West Virginia. I don't think that's true for Christian Cinema out in uh, Arizona, which is by the year becoming more and more of a democratic stronghold. So I definitely expect stronger progressive pushback on her. So I think as Ryan had mentioned, we addressed this it's, it's been a couple weeks, if I'm not mistaken. But just to reiterate if I'm remembering correctly, it's $3.5 trillion and well over 2,000 pages. And there's not a single senator who has read through it. Not a single member of government has read through this whole thing, which just makes me sick. It really turns my stomach. So I can say what I hope happens. I hope it doesn't pass explicitly in its current form. And I hope that legislation like this stops dead in its tracks because we can't have this and have a functioning nation afterwards. Now, as to what will happen... um, I really think Joe Manchin has his constituents to think about. I think if he passes something like this, there will be a reckoning for his own seat. I I don't know. I don't see it passing in its current form. I guess for me, my uh, biggest question will be on obviously the moderates and the Democrat Party, like who they're going to side with. Um, I think, and this you know might be a hot take, but I believe that Cinema will be the hardest one to convince. Um, I think Joe Manchin, like they're there and they've talked to him a lot. Cinema to me seems more like a wild card, and uh, I hope it passes. But I. I'm not holding out much hope. And then we'll kick it over to Josh to bring us into the right to repair. Tell us about it, Josh. So right to repair. This is a bit of a multifaceted idea. The main thesis of it is that if you buy electronic or electronic item or reasonably, if you buy anything at all, that you own that item now. And largely it's yours to do with as you please. You're free to modify it, take it apart, destroy it. That may terminate some warranty that may da 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 da. But fundamentally it's yours and you should be able to do uh, things to it. So right to repair is a kind of slogan for a movement to address a trend in recent technology that it's making more integrated. You're not able to replace components inside of laptops and, you know, especially we're not able to replace our batteries on our smartphones anymore. If you ever were in the first place and there's companies taking actions that really restrict the ability for third parties to work on devices, to access replacement parts, and sometimes going out of their way to intend 
intentionally sabotage a device after it has been worked on by a third party. And so then that's just like directly harmful to consumer and contributes um, to a lot of electronic waste and there are multiple uh, parts of it. So how the government was right now working on adjusting this is President Biden has issued an executive order asking the Federal Trade Commission to look at essentially how the executive government enacts law and enforces it. If Congress will pass a law, then the executive department responsible for carrying out the law is going to interpret and pass a rule or create a rule. And so President Biden is asking the Federal Trade Commission to create these rules about device compatibility and device repairability through executive order. There's also been action taken in individual states such as Massachusetts of where they target explicitly the auto industry trying to establish standardized components and standardized access to those components to allow repair shops to work on manufacturers. That law is actually a pending in lawsuit by most of the global um, automakers have joined in this collective to sue this. Another example of this is like standardization over in the European Union. They're trying to force Apple to get rid of the lightning charger on their iPhone. And I will say personally, Apple, Apple, if anyone, if anyone possibly hears this, you have replaced the lightning port on every single device, but your iPhone, it's gone off the iPad now. What's going on here? Just, just do it. Just, just do it. Get rid of the lightning. It's, it's so useless. Please. People can't access their and repair their devices. And it's been a trend in technology that's, that's getting worse. Now, we're going to have Austin give us a couple of examples. Then we'll really get into some of the more nitty gritty parts of what I kind of mentioned in the overview. For anyone out there listening that thinks the Right to Repair Act or this whole concept doesn't really hit home with them, as Josh mentioned, you probably, you might even be watching on a device that is impacted by Right to Repair, namely with the iPhone lightning charger. So manufacturers going from standard USB USB 2. Now we have USB-C on a lot of devices that aren't proprietary Apple devices. There are market improvements in performance and whatnot. USB-C versus USB Lightning. As far as I'm aware, I'm not a big Apple guy, so I'm not big on these specifications, but that seems to be a hit to, you know, basically you have to buy our thing, otherwise you can't use our thing. This is exactly the heart of what we're getting at. It would be preferable to have some degree of modularity or at least a strong third-party market. Other examples of this would be intentionally complex designs where you have proprietary screws when a normal screw would probably work just fine. Some components, think Josh mentioned earlier, onboard batteries that are soldered in, like the most recent smartphone that I purchased. I have, I'm Honestly, it's been like five years. I have a Samsung S8 Plus. I'm living in the Stone Ages, but it's great. My phone prior to that was a Nokia smartphone. For those of you that remember those bricks, I was able to replace the battery when it went dead, which is great. My Samsung, uh, I'm not going to crack this thing open. Uh, I'm not brave enough to because it is not as user-friendly to replace things on. There's the issue of third-party parts not being available and third-party repair programs being inhibited by manufacturers such as what Apple does. In some cases, they actually put limitations on what sort of operations can be performed on some of their products by contracts with third parties. And a weird um, situation that we'd come up with was also John Deere limiting diagnostic software scans to only their certified technicians. You can't go to the local lawnmower guy, which weird enough, we have one of those in White House due to works on lawnmowers, which is really great. We've had him do some work in the past, but he, he wouldn't have the software to scan a John Deere lawnmower. They said they were going to provide the information to be able to do that kind of work back in 2018, but they never did. So this kind of illustrates the issues with some of these companies, even if people are chasing them on this, sometimes they just don't really comply. And um, killing the third market makes their products, in my opinion, less viable an option because you can't actually fix them yourself. But uh, it seems that a lot of people would just prefer to buy a new one rather than repair. Replacement seems to be more of an option, which is not the best thing. The John Deere example you brought up, kind of the industrialized farming, hits home a lot closer for me now that I'm out in the Midwest, North Dakota, <laughs> Minnesota area, right? Because everybody does farming. That's one of their major industries out here. And I agree with everything that was said. And I think one additional thing, or just to kind of play the devil's advocate and throw this out here, I know one of the main concerns uh, with allowing kind of this this right to repair to happen is you you could have the person who is is qualified like Austin mentioned to fix things you also have third parties who are not and if I'm John Deere and I am you know going to put a warranty on a product I certainly wouldn't want to be held responsible to fix something that someone else messed up correct me if I'm wrong but that seems to be one of one of the big pushbacks towards this is that the the engineers and like the corporations are concerned that it might hold them liable for something that they didn't necessarily do unless there's like a clause that protects them I imagine they would probably be protected if they did, like from a third party repair. But you can also see from their perspective, take 
Tesla. Tesla does not like other people touching their cars, especially anything to do with the onboard circuitry. They will you basically come back to the dealership to get your Tesla repaired or serviced at all. And that's the way they want to do it. And as we see more and more kind of very complicated safety systems built into cars, built into self-driving cars, there is that greater concern of here is something our engineering team has worked on for you know a decade, and it is very precisely tuned for these very specific instances, and they can get modified and changed. And the engineers and the companies are worried about that, especially when it comes to accessing like the software and fiddling around with the different mechanisms and controls. Apple also uses this safety argument. They're like, if someone doesn't do the battery replacement right, you could get a, you know, a bad connection and it could cause a short and then cause a fire. Or if this person is not buying Apple authorized batteries to replace, you know, and they're not buying them from us here at Apple, we don't know how good of a quality of a battery that's going to be or if that's going to be safe to put in the phone. Therefore, we will only, you know, cover the warranty at an Apple certified, you know, location using an Apple certified part because that's the only way we can say we know it's safe for the consumer. So there is a little bit to be said about why they want some of their control when it does come down to safety aspects of it. And besides Apple, uh, Tesla also has a problem with this. I mean, I, under, I understand that as a possible future Tesla user, hopefully if I have enough money to buy one, I would say that I understand the quality control aspect of it. I'm also very unsure of like if something goes wrong with my device, uh, there's only very select places that I can go to. And, you know, it doesn't extend only to Apple or Tesla. That also just, you know, is a broader look at consumer electronic production regulation and control rather than, you know, there might be a bad battery thrown in there. And so that might cause, you know, the device to go on later. Well, let's focus on why are there bad batteries available to purchase or, you know, where's our quality, where's, you know, target the quality control there or, or some other way. Well, but, until recently, Apple was deliberately sabotaging their stuff, which they were dumb enough to come out and admit, right? <laughs> like, I still have the iPhone 7. Uh, that is how far behind the times I am right now because I don't, I don't want to pay for an upgrade. I don't want more payments on a phone. I was happy with it, but every time they release a new software update, it is killing it to the point that I can't run Spotify and open another app, period, because it, it shorts them both out and then my phone pretty much freezes. I, I think I'm one or two repairs away from being forced to go into their specific traders, or if I try to fix it, their specific people to fix it. At this point, you're better off just upgrading it. Is that planned obsolescence? I think the term is. I think that's right. So it's planned obsolescence, but there is something about, especially with our phones, as they progress throughout their lifetimes, they keep getting software updates. This is especially true for iPhones. And so the software keeps getting more complicated because Apple's designing the software for phones that have better processors. And then all of the app developers go, oh, the phones are getting faster processors, so it's okay if our apps, you know, use more system resources. And so it's kind of planned obsolescence, but it's also kind of the both the progression of assumption on the operating system and the app developers of the new device will also contributes to slowing older devices down. However, I will say on the note of Apple sabotaging their devices, I want to say this was first observed in the iPhone 12, that if you took an iPhone 12 and you took two I Apple iPhone 12s, you took them both, identical, uh, make and model iPhones. Took the back, you know, took the backs off, disconnected the camera unit, and then exchanged the camera unit between the two devices, and you know did everything back, put the device back together, powered it on. The camera would no longer work because Apple had programmed a software identification on the camera and on the motherboard. So if a third-party camera was ever used or the camera that uh, you didn't go into the firmware of the motherboard for the iPhone, you would have to change the identifier there to use a new camera, which is something only Apple could do. Meaning, even though it's possible to take off the camera and put it in, it was an easy repair for this uh, person, it would not let the camera work because Apple restricted the, uh, the software by the way they coded the device. Not only at that point do you wind up creating monopoly on the, the products, because of that, you get to charge whatever you want. So if it's a very simple repair, that costs you 38 cents to replace. Apple's the one who holds the monopoly or John Deere's the one who holds the monopoly on the diagnosis or the ability to replace correctly. Uh, then, then they get to charge whatever they want for it, which then that tends to negatively impact us as the consumer, which is why, you know, phones repairs can cost so much, or at least one of the reasons. I'll even get a, a, an, another uh, sentence to take on this. And there's this line of, well, it's going to cost $400 to repair your device. But 
the new iPhone 13 mini is only $600. Yeah. Why don't you go ahead and upgrade? Mm-hmm. About time to upgrade. And, and you know, it's kind of like the same thing of like why the medium option exists in drinks. Oh yeah, well, I'll go ahead and get the medium. Well, the large is only 10, like five cents more. So yeah, well, go ahead and get the large. It's only five cents more. You know, go ahead and get the new device. It's only a few, you know, like that's definitely a part of, um, because at some level they do make more profit on, you know, you buying a new device than them having to service another device, which at some level is just an expense if it's a warranty service. However, it can be prof- you know, profitable if it actually is like, you know, because repair businesses run all the time. And by making all of these things interconnected, like we already mentioned it with Apple um, and I mentioned earlier with Tesla too, is that you have this stream of the consumer really never gets to leave and it's bound to your own like conditions because you can't go anywhere to repair it. You can't go anywhere for the warranty. You can't go anywhere else to fix anything that's wrong with your device. You're sort of like bound and tied to. And I've seen that happen a lot here in the US with like everyone having an iPhone. So I, I hate it, but it's working for them. So as as we move towards wrapping up this section, what are kind of our thoughts on, you know, where maybe some major concerns or where we think this might go? Uh, what do you guys think on that section? I think there's a concern from a consumer standpoint, obviously, because, you know, maybe if, if you don't want to spend the extra $200 and get the IT, iPhone 13 mini, then you don't spend the $200. That's fine. But for people who are kind of on the borderline, it's nice to have the choice. But also, I don't know, you kind of have to wonder, why is it so cheap to buy the new iPhone as opposed to getting the iPhone repaired? That's a discussion for another day. But I think the biggest issue I see, it's very obviously, it seems to be consumer abuse from where I'm sitting. The other option is, well, I think there's an environmental concern personally. I think there's something to be said about the what used to be standard in American culture of you repair the things that you buy. You buy something for life, so to speak, and then you do what you can to keep it running. I think that's a great thing. And I think it's not only good for the person, it helps them grow in character, learning a new skill, learning how to repair and maintain something they care for. But also it's good for the environment too, in the sense that you're not getting a new iPhone every six months because, uh, I don't know, you can't open Spotify and uh, the internet at the same time or something. I don't know. I think all around, it's not super great for the consumer or the space they live in. That's totally right. I think the environmental aspect has to be considered, uh, especially, and I will say this is not exclusive to American culture. Uh, I do remember the good old days uh, when I was a kid where you could buy things that lasted for a very long time. Like my grandpa had a sub he bought in the 60s and 70s, and it's still working in some way. And I try to buy like a pan and then a year later, it's like not working anymore. So it's not only extended to electronics, it's really everything and more and more waste means that we do have to buy more and spend more money. Um, and I'm not exactly sure I like it. I think my my thoughts on this would be that it would be okay for them to move forward with the right to repair so long as there are enough protections carved out for the organizations who are creating and, and funding these, uh, whether it be tractors or phones or whatever tech we're talking about here. As long as that's protected, I think that the intervention there is acceptable because we're allowing for the increased protection of the company while also forcing them to be more competitive with each other. And that tends to be a positive good for the consumer, meaning we don't have to be forced to upgrade or we don't have to go to only one specific place to get the the repair that we're needing. I think there's concerns of, in my opinion, even of like the idea of device ownership. I think as even we've seen more software move into the subscription type service or even the um, video game industry where you see games as a service and where you're never quite in a state of ownership, but in this like continual state of payment for. In some way, monopolizing repairs does that to a physical item, that you're in this constant state of paying for the item throughout its lifetime to a singular company, same as a like subscription. So beyond that kind of dystopian, like only ever kind of leasing things and not having true ownership over a device, I think as you know, we said before, the the grandest concern for me about right to repair is about how we're being responsible of our production of these machines and our use of them and really how we maximize the, you know, benefit we get from these computers and stuff and, you know, advanced technologies we make. Because for a, a processor that could, if, you know, had the rest of its components serviced around it and could have its life extended by five or six years, that could be really good. And especially when you look at our modern uh, computer crisis we're going through where we don't have enough silicon wafers to make all of the processors that we need, being able to have a device serviceable that the user can maintain it, because right now it can actually be hard to replace parts of your computer. So having your device repairable so that you don't have to be put in that situation and you don't have to go think, let things go to waste 
I also think having international standards on electronics is a massive uh, point of, of really importance for the international community, things with like charging cables. This also gets into really specific things about computers, but like with it, there's like power supplies and motherboards. And there are some really terrible things the companies like Dell and HP and Lenovo do to their computers and the laptops that they functionally make all of these, you know, gold, silver, you know, silicon CPUs, one-time use electronics that will live for four or five years and then die, you know, and go into a landfill when otherwise that device could have been used for 10 to 15 years probably if cared for and upgraded along the way and was modular enough to be upgraded. As a point of just, you know, reduce is great. It's really important for the environment and just important not to let things, you know, go to waste unnecessarily. Like, why are we, it's not a good, good, it's not good to throw away a perfectly good processor if we don't have to. So obviously this was kind of an echo chamber uh, from us. <laughs> little- but, uh, I will also uh, say that this will just uh, be one of my particular points of advocacy because I do think when there are like such very basic things like consumer rights like this, and it's just so, it's a very clear environmental win. It's a very clear consumer win. Um, and so it's an important cause and it's picking up momentum at the federal and state level. And I'm obviously very pro right to repair in, in general. I think that's a good segue to our section 230 discussion. And we will be sure in our hot takes to tie back. We'll address both of these. So any final thoughts on that? But let's talk about Section 230. There's a few misconceptions about what this is that I'd like to clear up. And if you haven't heard anything about this, it's a great time uh, to hopefully learn some things. And then we'll dive into the discussion of what's going on, why might this be important. But in, in essence, Section 230 is a clause of the Communications Decency Act, and it is specifically designed to protect free speech online. It's kind of a modernization of the First Amendment privileges. What it specifically states is that no provider or user of an interactive computer service shall be treated as the publisher or speaker of any information provided by another information content provider. What this means is that if you were to come on our YouTube page, Facebook page, what have you, we would not be held legally responsible for what you say because it is not our opinions. What we could be held responsible for is what we say in these videos, theoretically, if we were to say something with like (laughs) slander, etc., that can be legally prosecuted. The misconception that takes place around 230 is that uh, I've heard before, and I think I've even mistakenly said in the past, that it'll, it, it kind of separates a, a publisher from an editor, like a platform from the editor. That's not actually true. All it does is it generalizes that you, as a person starting a thread of any kind that people might respond to in kind of the snowball that the internet happens to produce, you are not held responsible for that. So the important thing for this, as we look at big tech, right? So you've kind of got this big tech monopoly that takes place. You've got the, the big players, the power players. You've got Google, you've got YouTube, you've got Facebook, you've got Twitter, um, you've got Amazon. Have I missed anybody in those major players? I don't I don't think so. But anyway, they are the, um, the parent company of TikTok. Um, Wall, not, it's not Huawei. That's mm. the uh, that's the technology company. But the big uh, social media conglomerate in, that, uh, in China. I forget right. the exact name. But is that it? Or no, ByteDance. Tencent is a tech company. Yeah, t- well, Tencent is yeah is another one of is an yeah. entertainment con- conglomerate. But yeah, ByteDance is the TikTok parent company. Is yeah. the kind of their social media conglomerate. Okay, so one of the main protections, in addition to protecting you from being held responsible, is that you also can't, you are immune from civil liabilities for information service providers that remove or restrict content from their services that they deem, and this is quoted, obscene, lewd, filthy, excessively violent, harassing, or otherwise objectionable. So it also doesn't just say that you have to just leave your thread open. You can moderate the content. And that is what we see with like the fact checkers and Facebook and and YouTube choosing to downgrade or upgrade content. Technically, they're still protected under Section 230. Most of the complaints that I've heard surrounding Section 230, and I've heard this from both sides of the political the political aisle is that the content is selectively curated to skew towards a political side. And that is protected in the current section 230 under the, the, the phrase otherwise objectionable, because if it's misinformation and I can argue that such and such harm down the road exists because of that, well, now that's objectionable. So I can remove that. So that has kind of set the stage for what section 230 is. I'll kick it over to you guys to kind of talk where you'd like about that. I think first you would need to do away with the idea that any of this is objective. Obviously, uh, we saw the uh, we saw Facebook uh, and Twitter and all of the other social media accounts become very friendly towards uh, the government um, and start rolling back on uh, fake news and misinformation once it was clear that the Democrats were going to be in control of the government because they obviously don't want to be regulated, so they 
play fair to them. And like I always say, I'll say it that I like it while I agree with it. But one, I, I this has happened before. Uh, as soon as I as they start saying or doing things that I don't like, then I'm definitely not going to be on their side. I'll say one of the hard parts of even managing this social media debate is because they feel like they're these big public forums. We all come together and have our discourse. And it's even this like somehow glorified Habermasian uh, public sphere realized. I know none of that made sense. It was for my own self, but they're not. They're playgrounds of private corporations. And at some level, when we talk about wanting to control and moderate how they present partisan information from a governmental level, we're really stepping into a ground of policing a private company in a very unique way because we haven't ever had technology like this before. So, you know, it would be in a unique way. But nonetheless, we used to have like a what we called the fairness standard for the broadcast television you know, disappeared under Ronald Reagan. But I don't even think that even remotely ties in here. But I, I do think there's kind of this weird balance of how do we moderate what essentially has become these big open forms of information sharing and how the nation communicates with itself that that are just private companies. And I think that raises the question of, you know, do we really realistically want these private companies or even as dystopian as this sounds, would a kind of government type social media where these discourses could happen that weren't going to be censored and, you know, have your First Amendment protected be something, you know, wanted because that is, or, you know, how to moderate these, not only from internally, but externally, I think is a really hard question. I think Josh raises a really good point, uh, especially toward the end there. Having the government involved, as with most things that seems to be a trend and a lot of the opinions that I share, I really don't know how much of a benefit that would be. I feel like that would be the same issue. You'd just be shaking your fists at a different, nearly impossibly large entity, so to speak, because uh, it, it seems that social media, these large companies like Ryan mentioned earlier, they're growing in size and power to the point that they certainly overlap many of the governments across the world, but they're getting pretty large in size where I would argue they have more influence than our own government in a lot of affairs. Now that gets into the territory also of like media versus government who has the most influence. It's kind of a second face to media, social media, who has the most influence. It is a very tricky issue because there is an obvious problem, but the solution is not so clear cut. I, I don't know. I, I'd love to explore that and hear some more opinions from you guys throughout this talk. I have to agree, honestly, like with the amount of time and my phone tells me this every day, how much time I spend on all of these social media platforms. Um, it's obvious that I'm looking at what's happening here way more than I'm looking at anything else. So it's true. Like if Twitter happens to change the algorithm in some way and doesn't tell me, I'm not going to know. I'm just going to start seeing different things on my feed. If Facebook does that, same will happen. If Instagram decides to change my layout and they do it all the time, um, I'll notice but what am I going to do? Stop using it? No, like, of course not. I'm not going to stop. Well, once, because I like it. And two, it's also part of my career. So I'll bring up some of the, I guess, the larger overarching things we've seen. Um, <laughs> this really came to a head once uh, former President Donald Trump was kicked off of Twitter slash Facebook and was silenced at the violation of the guidelines from Twitter. And before that, when we were coming up to the 2020 election, the New York Post had attempted to share and had tweeted out some things about the Hunter Biden story that had broken. And it was pretty much immediately shut down by Twitter and Facebook. And they unilaterally shut down one of the oldest medias that we've had. The New York Post has been around for 200 years, 200 plus years, uh, dating back to well, close to the time of the Founding Fathers. And we see that Facebook and Twitter just shut them down. Twitter then kind of held them for ransom and said, as long as you delete these tweets, which we've deemed to be like factually irrelevant or however they had uh, surrounded those, then you'll be okay. And so then they kind of did this PR campaign because of all the backlash and said, no, no, we, we haven't silenced them. We're just, once they take down those tweets, they'll be fine. And so so they have then held, in a sense, hostage what was supposed to be the unbiased publication of the news cycle to the people and requiring them, in a sense, to take those down. That, because of the standards that they just didn't produce for violation of community guidelines, at that point, we didn't even know if it was misinformation or disinformation. It was assumed uh, by the big tech to be that. But they hadn't actually set those standards. To me, the troubling part of that is that they unilaterally did that. Setting aside for this moment whether that was true, whether that was politically driven, the fact that they could unilaterally shut that down preemptively, to me, is, is rather troubling, especially since if you want news, most people do go to Twitter at this point. I think that really does, you brought it up during 
uh, what you're saying right there, Ryan, the issue of unclear standards. I'm, I'm really big into YouTube. I spend way more time on YouTube than I should spend on YouTube, but not just political content creators or not just cultural commentators, but like gaming channels, art channels, fashion channels, every, uh, I, I mean, if you spend any time on YouTube, you've probably come across people that have, are complaining about getting arbitrarily, uh, getting one of their three strikes before their channel, potentially their livelihood is taken away from them with no cause and no real uh, choice of recourse. Because a, a lot, again, this is anecdotal from watching different YouTube channels, but a lot of them say like, hey, I've sent, you know, to whatever safety team they have that is going through all these channels and content and skimming through them and, you know, trying to get emails say, hey, you have wrongly stri struck my video down uh, to no response and no avail. I think a lot of the issue with some of these Section 230 things comes from a lack of understanding from these private companies. Like, what are your standards? Are they set in stone? Are they hard and fast? Can we get these set in stone so that we'll know what is acceptable, what is not acceptable? Because it seems there's enough of a gray area where there are people in these companies that can kind of arbitrarily strike people down whenever they want. That doesn't seem like a good thing. I know you're going you're gonna to hate me for this, but I do think that there's a few things here that we can agree and we can all agree here and we've agreed on them before that are legitimate standards to uphold, such as, you know, vaccine misinformation, such as COVID information, like all of these things that happened, especially in the last two years, obviously not want to get political because there's, you know, a lot of stuff that has been bad before that has to do with like an inherent political nature. But I would say that at least in science-based information, you could probably put some guidelines that are pretty specific on what to do. For example, don't say that vaccines cause autism. And for the automated Google reader, I advocate against that, by the way. So like it's, it's you know, th there's a few things I would say that are pretty black and white and all companies could potentially get behind. And obviously we talk at the point, like, you know, we call them oligarchs, you know, we talk about like the tech monopoly we talk, you know, and I think all of us would agree that a large part of this would be solved by dissolving these companies into several smaller companies, not letting Facebook buy every single one of its competitors. Um, I don't know. There's definitely that aspect of it, but there's also even like this reflective aspect of like sometimes when they, you know, do their uh, banning rule, like it, it works in kind of the negative way of like, you know, the, it's successful. So like uh, Richard Spencer, former very prominent neo-Nazi, um, Neonopolis, also this alt-white kind of white nationalist type provocateur. They have been completely removed from social media, um, from their various YouTube channels, everything. And they've both on different um, apps that will let them be there have complained how they have pretty much had their operations decimated and they can't like keep going and they're like having to go get like a nine to five job to make it and they can't keep doing their politicking. However, they were doing really terrible things. I mean, Richard Spencer was going around talking about peaceful ethnic cleansing and now he can't anymore. So that's a good thing. So there's, there's that line of like, it can shut like things down and that's, you know, and I think ties into the arbitrariness of like why it's problematic of, you know, why we need like clear cut rules for different things. But when we do find something that is like actually, you know, objectionable and worthwhile to get rid of, we, you know, it is proven to be fairly effective. It's definitely that like line of walking and even like realistically, again, how much we're willing to force a private company to do business with um, someone else when they're otherwise not discriminating on the basis of a federally protected class. Um, obviously, you know, we see, you know, civil rights issues come up. Um, and so there's fairly protected classes, but your political affiliation and beliefs aren't a federally protected class. So there's not real standard for bias, even holding them accountable, saying like you ban more Republicans than Democrats. I, the courts would go, okay, Okay, and what federal statute is that in violation of again? It's not. And to sort of make this time proof in a way, you also could embed some changes in the new revision of 230 that it's like, okay, we'll get, get, go back to these every five years. You know, like five years ago, Netflix was still like, you know, it was big, but it was not as big as it is now. Uh, 10 years ago, you know, it was not even a thing really, kind of. And so like all of these, uh, the technology evolves and as it evolves, I think we have to evolve our laws too. I wouldn't be opposed to having the section 230 have something that it continuously has to evolve. And it would also make it prove to some of the arguments here that it's like, okay, you know, a certain set of people built these laws right now. How do we ensure that they're fair? It's like, well, you know, we can go back in a few years and see how, how well they worked and sort of like continuously check and see if this is still what we want.
Now, to me, the effectiveness is never in question because like, we, we saw how effective that was because the Hunter Biden story was pretty well suppressed until about the time that they were not able to, to keep it under their belts anymore. Right? Like, there was enough outcry that it had kind of happened that they were like, you need to let the New York Post kind of do their thing. You, you can't unilaterally do this. And then they, they let him up gave them those conditions. To me, the, the main problem is a sense of almost modern tech vigilantism that's taking place because it is, in a sense, allowing these companies who are private entities do what they will with the traffic while claiming to be kind of just content platforms, not moderators, not curators. And this has been a very interesting conflict for me to kind of struggle with for the last several months because I, I don't like government intervention on things. I think that it usually doesn't hold a place. However, I, I also don't like the level of unilateral power uh, that they have when a lot of people depend on the global platforms like this to connect, to get their news, et cetera. And it can have dangerous ramifications because of how effective it can be. And yet I'm kind of left thinking, well, what do you do, Josh? You made a great point earlier talking about how these are private companies and they are. And so then like Austin mentioned earlier, you, you with almost surgical precision, need to be very careful how you moderate uh, these laws because you can't just call for the downfall of Section 230 because then way more harm in that instance is is done. Uh, the amount of harm that's actually actually been done so far is pretty minimal at this point. Uh, I mean, Josh, the people that you bring up where it's like, yes, a net good has been done because a hate speech, et cetera, can't exist. That's true. However, the principle that stands that I'm uncomfortable with is the fact that they can just like that, cut someone off, like Austin mentioned, they can downgrade, it can be more subtle, um, or it can be more overt, like completely cutting them off. I really do think that's where the, I'm not going to say silver bullet, but that really seems to be where the biggest issue lies. Is like you mentioned at the start of this with the last phrase, what was it exactly, if I can find that again, otherwise objectionable clause. Yep, yep. Uh, when it comes to things that dictate something so central as our ability to communicate with each other, I really don't think there's a lot of, a, there's not much place for vagaries when it comes to the law on that. I really, it would be very nice to see that stricken down and maybe even uh, 230 fleshed out a little bit more. Uh, because for those at home who haven't really heard, it was put into effect by Congress February 8th, 1996. It Internet been, was a baby. Uh, exactly. Internet was a baby. And the worst thing you would have is maybe someone had a homebrew website or maybe what, AOL, Instant Messenger, someone sends you something offensive. It's like the Internet didn't even remotely resemble what it resembles today, nowhere near size and scope. So I think it is, it's certainly time to readdress some of these issues. The way we communicate on the internet today is miles, miles away from how we did back in 96. I was one. That was a long time ago. Even to talk about the idea of making, because a lot of times, you know, when people say, well, they are acting kind of as, you know, this publisher, and so they don't deserve these protections, and, you know, they should be held liable. And Ryan, you talked about kind of, you've, you know, passed over, like how that would actually be so much worse. And that's uh, kind of even what I mentioned before the show, when I said my kind of unique perspective on um, sec uh, Section 230 is the moderation that would happen if Facebook became liable for what was on their website would be so incredibly harsh and so incredibly vicious because uh, uh, Alex Jones just got uh, just found was just found liable for the things he said around the Sandy Hook shooting and the harm he caused from that. If admittedly he's still, I think he has been from Facebook for other misinformation reasons. But since someone can be fined liable for damages like that, if Twitter and Facebook became liable for that as well, alongside of the Alex Jones there, they would be immediately so much harsher. Over in Germany, they have very, uh, they have hate, hate speech laws. And so to operate in Germany, Twitter has a very specific algorithm to, to detect neo-Nazi, white supremacist, and otherwise hate speech inducing words. And so people have asked, okay, cool, you have this excellent content filter for really bad racism, then why don't you turn that on in the United States? And in a Vice uh, article, in an interview with a uh, an employee, uh, an unnamed Twitter employee, the answer was um, because it flags a lot of the Republican political accounts and would ban them. If Twitter was held to the standard it is to Germany as in the United States, it would ban a lot of the political discourse. If Twitter became liable for someone's uh, manifesto that was posted on their website before they went out and committed some mass shooting, Twitter's content moderation policy would be so, so, so severe and strict. And so in some sense, that's why they these companies do need this, kind, you know, the legal protection of not being liable for this content as long as they're doing like good faith efforts to moderate. You know, we see that, um, you know, for like other kind of, you know, illegal content being uploaded on their site and other things that, you know, they do. And they put in, you know, good faith effort to make sure things don't happen. You know, Facebook 
Netflix repeatedly being you know criticized because someone has kind of you know live streamed a shooting on Facebook Live. But you know Facebook does good faith effort to prevent that from happening. But nonetheless, that's why at some level, if these companies do become liable, the algorithms they will put in place will censor so, so, so much more than they do now. It's interesting to observe that the ire directed towards big tech is directly correlated with whose side of the political aisle they happen to align with at the time. And that is exemplified when, is it John Darcy? What's Darcy's first name? The the CEO and creator of, of Twitter. I think it's Jack, Jack Darcy. Jack Darcy. Okay. Uh, thank you. Uh, <laughs> I know we're on your platform. Don't censor. <laughs> uh, Jack, <laughs> uh, Jack Darcy, when he was hauled before Congress and basically was like, what is going on with this downgrading of content? Um, and they had they had YouTube, they had Twitter, they had Facebook, and they had Google hauled before them. They're like, we need to talk about this. And you had a joint force comprised of both Senate Democrats and Senate Republicans. And they were both upset with these companies, but for different reasons. And from that interview, Republicans Republicans were saying that you're downgrading and censoring too much, and Democrats were saying you're not content moderating enough. And they both, in that particular hearing, it seemed that the Republicans were more interested in more speech, including the ones that we disagree with, and the Democrats were saying the the negative impact that is taking place is outweighing the free speech on that platform that's taking place. So it needs to rein it in. It's, it's kind of those two perspectives that were taking place. Uh, Josh, again, I'll go back to what you were talking about earlier about their private companies. That's what we're dealing with. And because they're private companies, like you mentioned, this is exactly correct. If they're held liable, the crackdown will just be where a private company, all of you, you either get on board with what we want or you're off. So it would actually be a greater restriction of free speech. And it would be a much, uh, if you're upset with your stuff being downgraded or taken off, it'll be gone if that that's what happens because it's a private company. Austin, I think you brought up a great point earlier talking about maybe one way to kind of trim away at this surgically and carefully is to make sure that we remove that final clause that says and other objectionable things and maybe flesh that out so it's not so broad. Because right now, um, if my content is removed, taken away while they're a private company, they still kind of get to sit in this hole uh, and be protected from, well, we're not an editor, we're, we're a platform and they get to enjoy those privileges that accompany that. But they also get to downgrade things that they might find to be objectionable off of the, the metrics that we mentioned before that don't seem to exist. I, I think that's kind of one of my big concerns with how this goes down is that it, it's actually concerning to me that there's a bipartisan effort on this because they want the same thing, but for different reasons. And depending on who's in power at that point, they will use that if they were to gain that control towards their political whim, or at least there's the potential for that. To me, that's more terrifying than what's potentially being downgraded or censored at this point is if Congress is not careful in the way that they were to approach this. Jack Darcy. Is that a Midwestern thing? I think it's Jack Dorsey. Oh, <laughs> uh, no, that's a Ryan thing. Ryan is in the okay. Midwest and Ryan can't pronounce things. I said instead of metonym, I said metonymy because I was reading off my slides the other day. <laughs> uh, speech person. I don't know what to say. That's that's a me thing. Thank you for the correction. <laughs> <laughs> no problem. <laughs> okay, that aside, the mispronunciation, what do you guys think on that as we kind of close this down? I think um, as Josh had brought up with Twitter and what they're doing in Germany as far as having a very strong filter to catch the pretty nasty stuff, I think um, obviously we're all on the same page. You need to catch the nasty stuff. It's not good. It's very, it's not constructive. It's very bad. It's very damaging to people. It's, you know, toxic ideology. The problem I have is I do not trust the people making these filters to actually catch the thing they are claiming they're going to make. Because for him to claim that half of what would amount to, I guess, like half of Republican talking points would go under the same filter is absolutely asinine. That is insane. That people are so out of touch that they would make filters and they would widen the scope of what would be considered white supremacy to include what less than a couple years ago was half the Overton window and half the country. That's not constructive. It's not positive. And it is a shifting of definitions. It's results in the like breakdown of social fabric we're seeing today. It's not healthy. It's not this it's not specific enough on the descriptions for what would be, you know, toxic ideology. It's not good. So I don't really I don't know. That's just really troubling and I don't necessarily trust a lot of these big tech people to work within the accepted definitions that would contribute to catching the most extreme ideologies. It seems like that window for extremism is shifting to the point where it's catching a lot of normal stuff. I don't know. That's that's kind of uh, kind of troubling. So, okay, early hot take. This is only a problem because we live in capitalism. Let's look at our solutions out of our current dilemma with these tech companies. We can have the government tell them how to moderate their websites, which uh, would then imply the government is the one going to be setting the standard for truth because if we're going to be fact-checking and taking things down from misinformation, then they're going to need to be, you know, true. And so the government's making this law, so the government was going to tell these companies what's true. And the government's going to tell 
these companies what to moderate. And so that that's our neo-liberal like, solution here is our minor modern democracy. We will elect our government and then we'll have them uh, tell those companies uh, what to do. Or if these companies were public owned and just subjected to the will of the people the same as our government, we could just make them do what we want them to do and moderate or even or even rather come to a way to find to have these conversations that isn't being made in these top down situations. These, you know, Mark Zuckerberg, uh, Jack Dorsey are functional kings of the modern era and control so much because it's not even just that they curate what they allow on the site, but then they curate, you know, your individual timeline, what they prioritize and choose and think you want to see. And they create a psychological profile for you. And then they reinforce it by delivering you that same content. All hail the algorithm. All hail the algorithm. <laughs> um, and we don't have any way of controlling and like subjecting these companies to our public will without using the government as our arm to do so because they are just these public companies. I mean, they're even private companies, but they're still public in the sense that they're on the stock market. But still that because of these, you know, billions upon billions that these companies are valued at, you can't, you know, it doesn't matter. You can't buy enough stock in there for it to ever make a difference. And there's not really a vote with your dollar when half of the internet is run by Facebook at this point anyways. And so much of the broader or social media integration, you know, is just all of these different companies, whether it's Facebook and Instagram and, you know, the United States and around the most part of the world, or it's, you know, uh, WhatsApp, which is owned by Facebook and is a major telecommunicative uh, application in replace of a normal cell phone service throughout most of Europe, because unlike an individual cell phone, WhatsApp will work in regardless of a country. And so if you're in the EU and you're moving a lot of countries around, you don't have to worry about the cell service because you can use WhatsApp. We need some better way to control the these gigantic corporations, even if we were to break them up, we'd still be in this problem of a very select few people are going to be decided how our discourse, our freedom of speech is moderated. And it's not going to be our government. Or if it is going to be our government, then we are going to make our government into the arbiter of truth and fact and what's approvable what's and, and what's not approvable. And that's terrifying. So we need some control over these companies that belongs in the hands of the people. So seize the means of for the production, eat the rich and sign on comrades <laughs> oh we have a viewer welcome oh they're gone <laughs> Josh, scared well, Josh, well, the communism scared him away what's going on. <laughs> i don't have that on here anymore i would have played it that would have been great we need it we need it <laughs> they came in at the hot takes all right uh, so I, I agree with you josh that you know if the government is going to be the arbiter of truth, then I, I don't want to misrepresent, but I, I, if I'm understanding that you're saying that's terrifying is that, you know, they're, they're kind of picking and choosing because it shifts year to year. And I agree with you. That's a big problem, right? Because then at that point, what you're dealing with is the government that happens to be in control, that party that happens to be in control, and then you get what they want at that point. I think that that'll kind of bring us to a necessary balance between what's going on now and where we'd like this to go. And I wouldn't just say, yep, let the government rewrite stuff. I certainly wouldn't want this done from the executive order section. I think that we have Congress to do this for a reason. But one of one of the things that's troubling to me, again, going back to this idea of uh, really no guidelines, this is exemplified in the fact that right after the January 6th insurrection, those those riots that took place, Donald Trump was banned from Twitter. At, at the time, the sitting president of the United States was removed from Twitter, and they had kind of tied that to this idea that he was, I don't remember if it was exactly hate speech or disinformation, I think it was some combination of those. But then around the same time, you had had the supreme leader of Iran was calling for the destruction and demise of Israel on Twitter and the Twitter response when they were basically questioned and, and said, well, how, that that's pretty blatant. Donald Trump's, you admitted, was more covert, more of that whistleblowing. Why? Where? Where's the the consistency? And what their representative said was that it's it doesn't violate the company's rules against hate speech. And what they indicated was that they're considered more foreign policy saber rattling, and contrasted that then with former President Donald Trump's comments. And so to me, that exemplifies that they don't really have a standard other than what they, I, I don't really see another conclusion other than what they politically disagree with. And to me, the well, big, go ahead. I think I understand them. Iran saying, I'm going to destroy Israel is a uh, empty threat because no, they're not. Uh, they will not. They are, they are afraid of uh, the, I don't know, several hundred billion uh, military industrial complex that will come down with the wrath of everyone. 
everything given the opportunity in the Middle East for the drop of a hat. So they're done. So that is what they're saying. They're saber rattling versus Donald Trump, who had like this borderline, you know, and we're still arguing over like this, where we had people break into our capital. Uh, to kidnap, to kill, to assassinate our elected members of Congress, to overturn the election, to prevent the counting of our, our, of our of our election, and to stop the peaceful transfer of power, which is critical to America. And they were saying Donald Trump's tweets actively, you know, not you know actively encouraging them or stirring this pot more is a legitimate threat to the stability the stability of our democracy versus Iran making empty threats on Twitter. Well, while I do understand that, and there is a distinction to be made there, at the same time. The rubric or the criteria by which Twitter is downgrading or banning people from Twitter is not being held consistently. Sure, in the aftermath, you can argue that one person's tweets were happening at the same time, right before or post uh, the attack on the Capitol that happened. However, if you come out and you say, we do not stand for outright hate speech, calling for genocide, etc., and then that happens by the calling for the destruction of an entire people group by a leader, and you have two sitting leaders, then to me, that is inconsistent application of the rubric means that I, I would be very, very troubled when we're allowing these people to to apply that. Again, going back, though, to our earlier conversation about how they're private companies, they can do that. This is why I think that Section 230, like Austin mentioned earlier, needs to be fleshed out more and be less opaque, less vague when it's talking about other objectionable things as the last part of that clause, because it does leave them the ability to, to be so inconsistent. We've addressed a few times how big social media's become that goes without almost without saying it's pretty much a given. I think one thing that people don't realize is that the internet is not some abstract thing floating out there in the ether. It's housed on servers. And approximately 33% of the internet is housed on Amazon Web Services. I don't know if y'all remember from last year, year before last, I can't remember the exact timeline, but uh, I think one of Twitter's main competitors at the time, Parler, they're kind of up and coming as an alternative to Twitter. Amazon Competitor's a strong on, term. <laughs> okay, a very light competitor, only in the very technical sense. They were not much to speak of, but potential competitor, which honestly, that's kind of what we're looking for as far as potential solutions. If there was a little bit more choice on the market and less of a concentration of power, hopefully that would be a good thing as far as making sure everybody was able to have a voice. Amazon booted them off of pretty spurious claims. Now that is Amazon's prerogative as the ones running the servers. But at the same time, how do we expect to ever have any competition in this space if seemingly I'm going to assert coordinated uh, social media type things coming together to crush competition. I don't know. It smells like, uh, I'm not going to say time for trust busting, but man, it really smells like a certain degree of coordination is going on that's preventing this, these spaces from having other competitors. Really big problems. We will be right back with our hot takes. And we're back. If you're watching us live, we never actually go anywhere. Magic. All right, Austin, take it away. I will start off my hot take with something I think we would all agree with, but is the hottest take of all. After you finish subscribing, liking everything from Between the Liars, after you've gone through all of our content, turn your phone off, take your shoes off, go stand in the grass. <laughs> In the words of a um, outdoors camp that I went to, in the words of one of the clinicians there, ground your electrons. It is time to get away from the social media for a little bit, clear your brain, and come back to reality the way it actually is, instead of pretending Twitter is the way the world actually is. Spend time with your family, spend time with your friends, even if it has to be through Zoom, if you must, talk to real people. Stop pretending like social media is real life. Go talk to someone as best as you can while dealing with COVID type things. Get back to reality, and that's the only way we're going to save this country. Now to the hottest takes. Again, I'll reiterate, it has been 25 years since Section 230 has been addressed. The internet is a vastly different place, and I think a lot of the issues that we're seeing will be mitigated if they will get specific with their laws. The nature of law is such that you need to be specific, otherwise people find loopholes, they can get around things, or we have these kind of issues metastasize over the course of two and a half decades. It's a problem. Um, I would love to see them get rid of the obscure, like anything that you find objectionable, essentially, at the end of 2.30. And honestly, I would like them to replace it with something holding these companies liable for their own rules. I think there's something to be said that the government could say, you said that you're going to enforce it this way. This person has recourse against you for that. I think there's something to that. And I mentioned it before the hot takes as far as the lack of innovation in the space. And I think that kind of ties, I can tie that back to right with repair. There is a certain degree where right to repair 
some people might claim that it might infringe a little bit on the right of some companies to innovate. I don't particularly think that innovation of changing to a proprietary screw, I, don't, I wouldn't call it innovation, not in the engineering sense or technological sense. I wouldn't say giving a cable that does the exact same thing as this other cable, but it only works with our tech. That's not innovation. I don't really have a governmental fix for that, but companies step your game up. Um, engineers, stop doing proprietary things for the sake of proprietary things. Make some new good technology. Do what you are called to do as an engineer. Do your job. Make something that's going to make people's lives easier. Do your job. Just do the thing. Austin's hot takes. Touch grass, do things. Um... <laughs> <laughs> so on the right to, to repair, uh, my hot take is obviously that we need to have more things like this. You can actually go to repair.org and it will take you through an overview of like what advocacy is being done, of what different states are doing and how you can contribute to that cause because I think it is a massive win for our environment and it's a very ubiquitous win for the average consumer. So uh, I'm always going to be repping that. Um, on the issues when we come to social media, I think we it's the impasse that we have no real say over what these social media companies do without the use of really heavy handed. Because even if we do get really specific, really intense uh, detailing out like what's acceptable content, what's not acceptable content, even if it comes through Congress, that's still a philosophical, moral relinquishment of what is true and what is right to the government and to regulators. And that should not ever happen regardless of how it is done through the government. No small group of people should ever be consigned with that power over truth and knowledge. It's bad enough that the philosophers terrorize us in the way that we like to. However, it has to be said, you don't have to accept the philosopher. We, The philosophers can go on and tell you what's right and wrong. How do we know things in epistemology and meta-ethics and normative ethics? However, you don't have to agree with it. The government can make you comply and you don't want that. But we see the problem that the medieval peasants had with the feudal lords and that what we have in Facebook now and what we have with a lot of our global uh, capital, massive companies. We don't have a say. We're not represented by them. They only care about their own interests. They have no actual care for the people they use. They use mindless algorithms to feed you content that has led to what has even infamously been now known as the YouTube to alt-right pipeline. There's been papers and essays and excellent coverage by the New York Times about stuff like this, about how echo chambers work and how they just keep feeding us. And it's senseless and it's just means for profit for profit's sake with an apathetic nature towards humankind's development and our kind of discourse and our speech as we progress philosophically as a people. So at that level, uh, again, grab your pitchforks, eat the rich. We need a say in corporations like this. It is not good when even if we break up these companies into 20 different companies, it's not acceptable that 20 individuals, 20 CEOs be in charge of the largest platforms of discourse in our country. That's not a free and democratic society anymore. That's a society controlled by 20 oligarchs. And on the note of echo chambers, I'd like to thank Mark Zuckerberg for allowing us to use Facebook as our platform for these hot takes. All right. So my hot takes. Uh, number one, competition is important. That goes both ways for our earlier discussion about the right to repair laws, as well as for Section 230. The fastest way, in my opinion, to wind up killing the sources of information that people have or getting the best deal when it comes to replacing their products is by allowing monopolies and oligarchies to control what is taking place. That being said, it's also important when we call for congressional or governmental intervention that we do that very carefully, that we make sure that they are held to the specific bounds that they are granted through the enumerated power clause in the Constitution, and that they don't just turn social media into some form of an extended arm where we get that echo chamber of exactly what the party in power wants us to hear through Facebook. It's a double-edged sword that can cut both ways, and you have to use it with surgical precision, which is very difficult to do. My metaphor for the sword is working very well because you can't be surgical, so you have to be careful with how we call for that. In my opinion, this will probably be the hottest take I give. If you're in favor of censorship, downgrading of content that is contradictory to your beliefs, your political affiliations, etc., because it benefits you, then I would say that that mindset, and in that case, you are, are a part of the problem. You have to think bigger picture before you call in for YouTube to say, for example, to be able to crack down on people who spread misinformation over things like COVID-19, etc. While that can be problematic, allowing them to censor that can be more problematic if it's not carefully done. And the last thing 
thing that I'll say is that big tech should not be holding the keys to information. It should not be up to a few heads of the Silicon Valley triarchy or however many there are at this point, four or five companies. I know it's not a triarchy uh, at the top where they get to just decide what is truth and what is published, what is downgraded, et cetera. That needs to be broken up in some way, but done carefully. I think the hardest take of all is that all of us agree. I, I've never seen all of us agree so much on the idea of these companies regulated, maybe for different reasons, but you know, the means justify the ends, I guess, in this case. And like, we all understand that the companies are getting a little too big, maybe already gotten too big, definitely. And they need to be broken up in some way. So I guess my hot take now is that all of us are just spewing cold takes at least for this episode. On a warmer take, I'll, I hate to say it, but I think I will be the doomer on this one. You know, like Josh said that, you know, we need to take over the means of production. And I agree 100%. But at the same time, we know like somebody needs to be in charge of this. And right now it's the CEOs. And I am advocating sometimes for the government to take over this too. But I also don't want a government that controls everything I hear and watch and see and everything. Like I don't, I don't want that either, but somebody's going to do it. And I don't, I don't really see a way out of this. Like, I, I wish I could say that, yes, we need to take these very specific steps. And usually with many things, I can see the way out. But with these huge companies with incredible, incredibly complex softwares and a universe entirely living in our phones, I don't really, unless we like, you know, shut it all down, I don't really see a way for us to get out of the trap that we've fallen into. Like, we're falling into. All right. I'm sure you find yourself somewhere between the liars. Join us next week, noon central for the start of our broadcast. Goodbye for now.